0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we examined the final part of the opening statement by Travis McMichael's attorney, Bob Rubin. On today's episode, we will examine the complete opening statement by one of Greg McMichael's defense attorneys, Franklin Hogue. And then, as Hogue concludes his statement, we will bring in our consulting producer, Paul Butler, for his take on how Hogue's opening compared with Bob Rubin's. That's all coming up after the break.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Franklin Hogue rose to address the jury. We will allow Hogue's opening to play in its entirety with only one brief ad break. Then Paul Butler will join me to discuss the efficacy of Hogue's statement.
2: Greg McMichael was absolutely sure. He was absolutely certain. And he was absolutely right. The guy he saw was the guy he suspected. On February 23, 2020, Greg McMichael was reupholstering boat cushions on the bed of his truck, parked in his driveway, using it as a workbench, pointed out towards his street in the direction he was looking. A quiet street in a quiet neighborhood. In the midday sun on a pleasant February day in 2020 here in Brunswick, Georgia. When a young man ran past him at a sprint, he was, as Greg described him to police that day, and you've heard it now several times, his words, hauling ass. The young man had it hooked up, Greg said, running at a sprint. As Greg reported to police that same afternoon, he wasn't out for no Sunday jog. That man was the same man whom Greg and others neighbors, Greg's own son, Travis, had seen in that house just a few doors down from his house on Satilla Drive, the house under construction, where surveillance videos, first one, then a couple, and then several, had video recorded him, as you've seen and heard. Not once or twice, but four times at night, not in the bright light of day, but in the dark of night. So what did Greg believe he was doing, this man, in the house on those occasions? What did he think he was doing? Well, Larry English, the owner of the house, had described him to police as plundering around. That same man, Larry English, had reported this to 911, to Greg's neighbors, and to the Glen County police officer, Robert Rash. And it got to Greg McMichael. This same man who had been captured on surveillance video. As Mr. Rubin told you, infrared lighting, it's lit up for us to see. But if you were the person in that house in the dark of night, you wouldn't see anything except possibly the little red infrared lights of a camera, if that. Inside that house where, so, Greg had been repeatedly told by Larry English, Diego Perez, Officer Robert Rash where he had been told that thousands of dollars of electronic equipment had gone missing, stolen from a boat not visible to any camera. And so when Greg McMichael said later to police he had not seen him take anything, well the camera wasn't on that boat from which all the items were taken. And this happened in a neighborhood that had experienced break-ins and burglaries and thefts over many months. And you saw some of those Facebook postings the neighbors had put up. The same guy that Officer Rash had canvassed the neighborhood with a screenshot of him from one of those surveillance cameras asking People knocking on their doors and asking them, have you seen this man? Do you know this man? Showed the screenshot of him to Greg McMichael. That same guy that Officer Rash told Greg McMichael, nobody in the neighborhood knows him, nor had ever seen him before in that neighborhood. And then in December, Officer Rash sent a text to homeowner Larry English, and this is what he told him. Your neighbor at 229 Satilla Drive, and it's actually 230 Sedilla Drive, is Greg McMichael. Greg is retired law enforcement and also a retired investigator from the DA's office. He said, please call him day or night when you get action on your camera. His number is, and he gives him his cell phone number. The same guy in that house that Greg's son, Travis, saw with his own eyes. At that house, yet again, the night of February 11, 2020, just 12 days before the tragic events that bring us here to this courtroom. And on that occasion, as you've heard already, when Travis saw that same man, he made that furtive movement to his pocket in the dark of night in a situation and circumstance that made Travis think, as you've heard, he might have a gun. And of course, he reported that to his dad, who also thought he may have had a gun that night, a signal to both of these men, that movement, that this man may be armed. So on February 23, 2020, 12 days after that night, when Greg McMichael saw Ahmad Arbery sprint past him on that sunny Sunday afternoon. Not only did Greg recognize him as the same guy, he also believed from the manner of his running, sprinting, and the direction from which he ran, the English house, to his left, and past him on Satilla Drive, deeper into the neighborhood. That, as he told police later that same day, He thought he was running from someone or something, that he was being chased just by the manner in which he was running, sprinting. He thought that he had just been spotted, he told the police, in someone's house, in or around someone, perhaps harming someone. Law enforcement trained and experienced for 30 years Greg noted specific features that he saw as this running man ran past him that matched precisely the man he'd seen on surveillance video before. Young, black, male, five feet, 10 inches, slender, muscular, with short hair that Greg described as short dreads, twists, wearing a white T-shirt. There might be a chance, finally, Greg thought, as he told the police later that day, for the police to question this man, to find out, who are you? Why are you here? No one in the neighborhood knows you and we've had all of these problems in our neighborhood, specifically at that house, but at many other houses. A man who had eluded police up till then, as Greg said to the police later that day, no one could ever, ever catch him, he said to Officer Brandenberry on the street, at the scene that day. If only he could be detained long enough, Greg thought, long enough for the police to arrive. So, they're using his truck as a workbench. Greg dropped his tools, left his project, ran into his house, called out to his son, Travis. The same guy is back. The same guy is back. Let's go. Believing that he was the man who had burglarized Larry English's house, Believing that Larry English's house had in fact been burglarized. He had never been told anything different. Never been told there were other places Larry English had taken his boat where his stuff might have been taken. He had never been told anything different. Believing that he may be armed. Wearing pants with pockets. Greg grabbed his gun. Travis, too, and they piled into Travis's truck. Parked there at the house near Greg's truck, and you can see it on video. You'll see it later. They piled into the truck, Travis in the driver's seat, and as you've already heard, Greg, all 230 pounds of him then, he's smaller now, Stuffed into a child's car seat and really not into it, but on top of it His face almost in the windshield as he's sitting on top of this car seat Strapped into the passenger seat. He couldn't just snatch it out and then jump in and sit in the seat. It was locked in And as they pulled out to the street to turn right to pursue this running man that they suspected to be a burglar. There stood down the street, not very far away, Matt Albenzi. Matt Albenzi, you've heard, and you'll hear, hear from him. A man who had walked up his street, had seen Ahmad Arbery in the house, had taken his cell phone, had called the police, and while standing near a tree, looking at the house, locked eyes with the mod Arbery, who ducked down and then came out of the house, and you saw the still photo, was off, running. And when Greg and Travis got into Travis's truck, and we all know this, speech occurs not only with the words that come from our mouth, but with the expressions on our face. The hand signals we give, many of which we know, speak words. Matt Albenzi, who was walking up the street, went like that to Travis and Greg. There he goes. In fact, he's saying on the 911 call that he's on, there he goes. He's running, waving his arm in a motion that conveyed a clear message to these men that's He is the same guy. Matt Albenzi had seen and heard about this guy in that house too. There he goes. The same man. In just a few short minutes, they would catch up to Ahmaud Arbury on Burford. You saw the one still photo from Mr. Bryan's house, the motion detected photo of the truck and Mr. Arbery. They would catch up to him and they would have the conversations Mr. Rubens just replayed for you and that you'll hear in this case on Burford Road. Tell him to stop. We want to talk to you. Tell him, the police have been called. And when Ahmaud Arbery turned ultimately from them without saying a word and ran back the way he'd come, Travis stopped his truck. Greg took that opportunity to get himself out of that car seat and climbed the best he could into the bed of the truck where there's a toolbox that he could sit on. And there he sat and as Travis drove the direction that has been described, the opposite direction from ah- Ahmad Arbery, who has by now run back to Satilla Drive, while Travis and Greg drive the opposite direction to Zellwood Drive. They're going in opposite directions. And Mr. Arbery is turning back in the direction from which he had come. Mr. Bryan is behind him, watching him, apparently. And Travis drives his truck around Zellwood, not knowing, not knowing, which way Ahmad Arbery would run, not knowing that he would turn off Satilla and run down Holmes. And up on Holmes, Travis turns, and Ahmaud Arbery and Travis McMichael with Greg in the truck, now in the back of the truck, pass each other like this. And ultimately, and you'll hear more details throughout the case, Travis parks the truck, stops, and Ahmaud Arbery is out of sight around that dog leg you've seen. And there stood Greg in the back of the truck. And you've heard already from Mr. Rubin that Travis thought Greg had called 911. Greg didn't have a phone on him. Travis dialed it and handed it to his father. And that's where you see him standing in the bed of Travis's truck, looking back now towards Ahmaud Arbery, who's turned around. When you saw the video earlier when the state played it, when Mr. Arbery turns around, he turns back toward the McMichaels. They're already stopped up on Holmes. They're already there. They've passed him. And they're now waiting for the police to come, keeping an eye out for which direction he may go. They can't even see him. And then here he comes back. And there's Greg with his phone to his ear on the 911 call. And as Ahmad runs towards the truck on the video we've all seen, that's been seen everywhere, that you're going to see many times, no doubt, in this trial, he's on the phone. He's describing to the person at 911 where they are best he can. He doesn't even know the name of the street. He just tells him till Shores near his house. And then you hear him as mod gets close to the back of the truck. You hear him yell, Stop right there. Damn it. Stop. And then the next thing you hear, and the last word you hear him say on that phone is, Travis. Because by then, Greg has turned as as Maud Arbery is running past the truck, and he sees him turn towards his only son. He drops that phone to the floor of the truck, in the bed of the truck. He's now in abject fear that he is about to witness his only son possibly be shot and killed in front of his very eyes. And then that man did something so unexpected to Greg McMichael, so incomprehensible to him, he turned sharp left. He didn't cut right, go across the yard to Satilla Shores and down the street and on his way. The direction, as you've heard, is the only way into that neighborhood with police on the way. No, he turned left towards a man with a shotgun. And he was on Travis instantly. Clearly, it seemed to Greg McMichael, attempting to take the gun from his son. And as any reasonable person would believe, he would take that gun if he could and he would use it to shoot his son. The what happened... In this case, will, for the most part, though there will be some dispute, but for the most part, be without dispute. The facts, the what happened in this case. The why it happened is what this case is about. This case turns on intent, beliefs, knowledge, reasons for those beliefs, whether they were true or not. Were there good reasons to believe them? Were there good reasons to believe that this young man, Ahmaud Arbery, had been in this house where things had been taken and that he may have been the person who took them? Were there good reasons to believe that as he ran past Greg McMichael that day, that he was fleeing from someone or something who had seen him in that house, or near that house, which turned out to be exactly what happened. That afternoon, after the tragedy unfolded that we're here for, Greg sat down to give a lengthy interview to police officer Parker Marcy, and Officer Marcy asked Greg, and these are his words, what was your intent, should this guy have stopped? Greg's answer, to hold him till till you come check him out. There was no doubt in my mind, having seen the videos, who this guy was. Still quoting. My intention was to stop this guy so he could be arrested or be identified at the very least. On that day... At that place, at that time, Greg McMichael was absolutely sure this was the guy, the same guy he had seen on surveillance videos, inside a house multiple times where Greg had sound reasons to believe theft had occurred, burglary. Greg was absolutely sure. He was absolutely certain. His suspicions were well-founded. Now, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I've been doing this a long time. And I consider a room like this, an American courtroom, to be practically a sacred place. It's in here that the facts will unfold for you. It's in this room where you will decide the truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, the truth of this case is that Greg McMichael is not guilty of any of these crimes.
1: Thank you, Mr. Hogue.
0: Joining me now to discuss Franklin Hogue's opening statement is Georgetown Law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice. Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thanks again for being with us.
3: Hey, Kerry. It's great to be here.
0: What did you make of Franklin Hogue's opening on behalf of Greg McMichael?
3: I thought it was better than the opening for Travis McMichael by his defense attorney. In an opening statement, you want to tell a story, and that's what Greg McMichael's lawyer did. It had a great beginning, almost like a novel. His first words to the jury were Greg McMichael was absolutely sure. That's memorable. It makes an impression. And it makes you want to listen to the story. The opening from Travis McMichael's attorney was more legalistic, it was harder to listen to. We're talking about style. We're talking about performance, not necessarily substance. But it's great to have a lawyer who knows how to appeal to a jury if your freedom is on the line. And Mr. Gregory McMichael has that kind of lawyer.
0: When we spoke of Bob Rubin's opening, we talked a lot about Dog Whistle's code language in his framing of Ahmad Arbery's actions around the Satilla Shores neighborhood. Did you detect any similar use of coded language in Franklin Hoag's opening?
3: You know, it's hard because this whole case is about a lynching of an African-American man by three white men. And so races throughout. I don't think it's as overt in Gregory McMichael's opening as it was in Travis McMichael's attorney's opening, you know, we talked last time about even though they're charged with similar offenses, Travis was the trigger man. And that makes a difference in terms of how juries think about these cases. Gregory McMichael's opening was shorter on pages. It was about five as opposed to, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages for Travis McMichael's opening it obviously didn't take us long to tell the jury the story that Gregory McMichael's lawyer wanted the jury to hear so you often don't reveal your whole case in an opening, and you wanna hit on what the important parts of your defense are if you're representing an accused person. You don't wanna give away too much because the prosecution hasn't put on its case. You also don't want to look like you're hiding bad facts from the jury. You don't want the prosecutor to be the one to tell the jurors those bad facts. We talked about this with regard to the prosecution opening statement as well. So. I didn't see the same overt references to race in Gregory McMichael's opening by his lawyer that I did with regard to, to Travis. But when I say the whole thing is a dog whistle, whenever you tell this story about this black man running through the neighborhood and these white men think that he might be a, a burglary suspect or something more sinister was implied by Travis McMichael's attorney that he might be a, a rapist, intent on harming the property owner's daughter. So there was nothing that rash in Gregory McMichael's opening. But again, just telling the story certainly raises the tragic history of false accusations, race-based false accusations in the South.
0: One thing that I thought of as you were describing what a defense attorney needs to do was that Franklin Hogue, on behalf of Greg McMichael, did not get out in front of a few very important facts that are going to come up, statements made by his client. For example, he didn't get out in front of Greg McMichael's statement that they had Arbery trapped like a rat, quote unquote. He didn't get out in front of the fact that he said, stop or I'll blow your fucking head off. And he didn't get out in front of the fact that he told his son or he told the cops that he yelled to his son, don't shoot, Travis. And I wonder what you think of his decision not to get out in front of those statements that he made.
3: This is a father and son who are both charged with the most serious crime. And They have interests that are legally distinct, but the law is one thing and family and relationships are another thing. And so if they weren't related, we might expect different kinds of strategies, including if Gregory McMichael's lawyer believes that he has less exposure or should have less exposure because he's less culpable than to get the trigger man. The prosecutors might have put a deal on the table. And maybe they did anyway, but I think it would be harder for a father to cooperate, even if that means he gets a lesser sentence, reduced punishment, if his cooperation means implicating his own son in a murder. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that bad facts that in some ways implicate Travis weren't made in this opening statement because I imagine there was some kind of conversation between the lawyer and Gregory McMichael about how do you want to approach this? This is what I typically do, but typically the co-defendant isn't a son or a father. So this is a, a different kind of case from that perspective. And again, you do want the jurors to believe that you are trustworthy, that you're not hiding things. But the opening statement is the the first chance, and I think most lawyers think of it as the best chance to gain the confidence and trust of the jury. Here, I think it's probably a little bit more complicated.
0: Paul Butler, thanks again for being with us today. Always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we examine the beginning of witness testimony in the state's case against Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montristelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Tarricone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.